0: Welcome to The Hobbyist. My name is Piers Cooper and I'm here to talk to you about hobbies, my own and yours. Hello and welcome. I am Piers once again in your ears to bring you the latest episode of The Hobbyist, the podcast about hobbies and interests. I have too many hobbies, and this podcast is my outlet. I tell you about my hobbies, and in turn, you share yours with me. Please email me at the address in the show notes if you have a hobby you'd like to talk about. I can't wait to hear from you. Later, we have an interview with Richard Weaver at Crafts and Tools on social media about his love for green woodworking and blacksmith toolmaking. But first, a bit about how I've been getting on.
1: Hobbies Roundup.
0: I've mostly been engaged in battling with a 1500 rated bot named Wendy on chess.com. As I've mentioned before, I've been struggling with my development in chess, and well, this bot is my new nemesis. I was so close to beating it on Thursday, I could have wept when I blundered my way from a winning position to losing in about four moves. I still don't have that awareness, the ability to assess the situation effectively. At the moment, I seem to be suffering at the hands of knights, particularly. Levy Rosman did a video on how to assess the situation on YouTube this week, and I'm going to watch it again. It's given me some insight into how to rate my position. Of course, that doesn't tell me how to fix it when I'm down. My Khan is coming along nicely, but it's clear I need to practice some variations I'm currently not aware of. Bots are curious things to play. They blunder one second and then play a move I would never have seen in a million years. I think this is because you are playing an engine. These engines are chess-playing computer programs that are far ahead of even the most advanced player, and they think differently. They're able to compute ahead and assess vast databases of games to draw on the best moves. When they're turned into bots, they get hamstrung by rules in order to give them a rating, and they have flaws programmed in, but essentially they're chess machines, and every now and then they can't disguise their moves are far from human. Oddly enough though, I'm not downhearted by losing to this bot around half a dozen times a day. I'm learning every time and it'll be improving my play no end. I've tried the Dr Wolf teaching app but I didn't find it particularly engaging. I may try again while things are still difficult. Like most apps, you have to pay and if I'm going to pay for lessons, I think once we're out of lockdown I'm going to have to splash some serious cash and pay for lessons with a real person. Of course. Maybe a dozen or so lessons won't be enough to enable me to rise to the 1,500 over-the-board rating I so desire. Equally, I may be very wrong about that. Only taking the lessons will tell. Moving on, I've been in the garden and done some tidying. Gardening was my great love before woodworking came along, and although I still very much enjoy it, I don't give it the time it deserves, and my garden suffers as a consequence. I have two plans for this year. The first is for the graveled area outside my back door. I'm going to clear it, rake the gravel smooth and then cover it with a couple of inches of topsoil. Now I can almost hear the puzzlement from here but this gravel is 90% of my gardening effort because I'm constantly trying to stop grass and weeds growing in it. The logical thing to do since I'm not wed to the gravel is to let the grass grow. I'm going to sow it with grass seed and lay some paving slabs to allow access. The second plan is to at last build the garden house I've been talking about for several years. I've ordered a mattock to allow me to dig out the bramble roots from the patch where the building will go. Then I'll concrete in the supports and get going. It's going to be around 8 by 6 feet and be clad in used scaffold planks. I'll fully insulate it and include power so it can be used year round, and then either install a tiny wood-burning stove or an electric heater for winter. The front will be an off-the-shelf double-glazed patio door set from Screwfix or off eBay. The whole thing won't be cheap, but a project like this should keep me occupied for a couple of months, all told. There's not much mention of plants in this, and that's because I'm sowing seed. I gathered seed from my tomatoes last year, and I've sown these this weekend to start that crop. I'll sow again in a few weeks to extend the cropping year and yield. Last year I had a glut all at once, which I wish to avoid this time around. I also had success last year with zinnias, and I love these garish flowers, so I'll sow some of them too. The garden needs a good solid tidy, but I should mention my hellebores, which whilst largely over at the time of recording this, last weekend were a spectacular display of acid green and deep purple. It really cheered me up to see these in full bloom. Finally, I've been out on the bike a fair bit since the last episode. I've been struggling for fitness and I'll admit that freely. Some excess corona weight has made things tougher, and enforced rest in January due to a calf injury has spelled ruin for my pace and endurance, but I'm finally starting to pick a little of that back up, averaging 17 miles an hour on an 8-plus mile ride today. That's nowhere near the distances I used to do routinely last summer, nor near the pace, but it is a good feeling to finally do something that averaged well over 16 miles per hour and then not feel like I'd been beaten with a cricket bat. Right, on to this week's interview the 10 things okay so uh, today's interview for the 10 things is with richard uh, welcome richard hi how you do very well thank you and you not bad <laughs> good. could be better could be worse <laughs> no
1: it's okay actually it's, it's been all right
0: good good okay so you're here for the 10 things today mm-hmm. um and we might as well start with those 10 what is your hobby so i'm a green woodworker and a blacksmith tool maker those are two things that to my mind are, I, I can see they're, how they're well associated. Well,
1: that's quite good, actually, because quite. they are. And certainly my journey into it has all been about association between those two topics. And the more you get into this particular type of craft and hobby, you know, the, the links between tool making and green woodworking, um, they certainly get closer.
0: Nine. when did you start doing this?
1: So this one's a bit more involved. So Hmm. I trained as a field ecologist um, way back in the day. So my background was actually um, invasive plant species and did some work in that. I went to Australia, came back and I took a job working as a ranger for Birmingham City Council. And when it was there, I met a chap called Lee Southall, who I still see quite regularly in Birmingham and he still works for the council. And uh, when I was a ranger, he took me aside one day and he's 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 someone you should definitely talk to one day he's a real character and um, my memories of him are him kicking open the door in the office and him sliding in with jazz hands singing like that was my <laughs> that was my boss's <laughs> boss um but yeah he he he's been doing this for 30 years and so he he spoke to me about it one day and said you've got to you've got to try it. he said not only because it it's fun and you know there's there's such a rich history to it but it's useful in your job and, and the things that you're doing when you're engaging with the public and, and doing, um, doing stuff out and about in the parks. So, yeah, that's sort of how I got started, certainly with the greenwood working. Um, the blacksmith tool making came about five years later. Um, there is a bit of a silly story of that. My parents went on holiday and they needed me to house sit. And uh, while they were away, I, uh, I thought, oh, I'd like to have a go at blacksmithing. I think that'd be really good fun. I don't really have any things to do. And I was watching lots of YouTube videos at the time. And I saw some examples. And in fact, I saw one at the Bodger's Ball, which I'll get to later, how you can actually just build a forge into the ground. And you can sort of do it actually in situ in the dirt, um, which I've done with the scouts since since, um, I've done that. But anyway, my parents went away and I dug a big hole in their garden, essentially. And I filled it with charcoal and I put a leaf blower in it. (laughs) And I started having a go at just trying to move metal around. And uh, and when they came back, I put the turf neatly back on the garden, so they never knew that I'd I'd done that.
0: Eight. What was it that really first drew you into it after being introduced to these new skills? Well, Lee was really keen.
1: I mean, he's, he's, he's full of passion. He's really, really full of passion. A lot of that's transferred, I think, onto me. You know, I genuinely feel the same, and I feel like if people only knew about it, I think more people would get it. And certainly what really really grabbed my, so for the first couple of years I was doing stuff in the parks with Lee Lee's primarily into pole aid turning but he can, he, he can make gates and fences and oh tons of stuff and I went to the first Bodger's Ball it's like a festival but it's also the AGM for the APT which we'll talk about later I imagine but mm-hmm. the Bodger's Ball is kind of like our gathering for once a year we meet so there's about 400 fit for us that rock up to a field or somewhere it's always a new location around the UK. And we have like a big central fire. We have all our lathes set up in circles going around. It's so only Thursday, Friday, we do teaching and training. And then Saturday, Sunday, it's just general stuff. But we do competitions and all sorts of things. Anyway, I went to that and I rang a friend of mine, Andrew, an old friend from uni, to say, I'm going to go to this thing called the Bodger's Ball. Lee's been going on about it. And he says I must go. Do you want to, do you want to go? And we sort of went not really knowing what it was going to be like. And it just absolutely blew our minds. It was so good. It was in Dorset and it overlooked the sea and the weather was perfect. We camped in the woods and we watched I watched a blacksmith called Dave Budd sit on his knees with bellows on next to him in buckets as he was forging tools in front of us. You know, I watched people do log to leg turning competitions. Ah, oh, just really, really it really opened my eyes. And literally after that weekend, it not only reignited my sort of passion and love for doing things like crafts, but um so yes, that was I think when it really when I really got hooked, it was that first Bodgers Ball.
0: What sort of time of year does the Bodgers Ball take place? It's the second
1: week of May. And again, it's always quite interesting because it's always a different location in the UK and a different Mm -hmm. local group runs it and sets it up. It always has the same elements, but the weather's always different, the location's always different. So it's always like a new experience each time you go. Seven.
0: Getting back to your hobbies then, what do you most enjoy about
1: them? I think it's only going back to where I first saw that craft table and, and saw the competition entry table, and I saw a beautifully turned goblet, which was done on a pole lathe, and then I saw a bowl that was made on a pole lathe, and these spoons that are smooth and immaculate, and you couldn't believe that they were hand-carved. And then I saw these chairs that are just phenomenal like the skill involved and I think the the breadth and the diversity of what you can do in it I think is what really really gets me like during the last year of this pandemic I've taught myself how to turn wooden bowls and it's I can show you how to carve a spoon in a couple of hours but you would spend the rest of your life getting better and better and finding new ways of doing it and I think that's the that's the real crux of it like and people are always thinking of new, new ways of doing stuff, like certainly for the tool front. And, um, you know, people are thinking of different tool designs, like Nick Westerman, he does a hollow forged um, tooling, which makes sharpening easier. And it's painfully simple, but mm. it's like, why didn't anyone think of that? You know, it's, it's just full of things like that. And you can just spend so much time improving and looking at what others are doing and, you know, looking at how you approach um, even the most basic of tasks. Um, you know whether it's turning a bowl or spoon carving or forging out something and um, there's just so much diversity in
0: it six so what do you least like about it then
1: certainly when I started you know it is it can be quite intimidating certainly when you look at the quality and the skills of some people it is frightening you know a friend of mine he sent me um he sent me a picture of a spoon I made for him for his was it his wedding day and it was like eight years ago and I'd only just started getting into carving spoons and it looked shocking it was so bad and I looked and thought oh I can't believe I thought that was good you know but at the time I, I was really happy I was like oh I've made that that's really good <laughs> and then just re, re uh, he only sent it to me about a month ago because he found it again and uh, I was like oh god it's not good at all but yes it is a bit intimidating when you start particularly when you see the level of skill that people have there's a lot to learn, you know, certainly not just in terms of how you do something and that can seem quite intimidating, but also um, knowing how to do it and knowing what tools you need. I mean, you know, you get the people that want to rush in and buy the really most expensive stuff. Like when I first started, I bought a fro and a fro looks like a letter L, like a giant capital letter L. And the up part is a wooden handle and the bottom part is a steel blade. And you literally just hit it with a mallet and you can use that to split wood. And traditionally, they were actually used to create shingles, as well as split wood for uh, fence panels like chestnut fencing. Because the idea is that you can mm. control the angle of the split using a fro. And depending on how you angle it and tap it along, you can control the the way the wood splits. You can use it to split wood gem, which is what we normally do, but they have other uses. Anyway, I bought a fro from a seller. And <clears throat> not knowing anything about throws, um just bought one and I didn't realize you get different kinds and you get different sizes and the actual ha- the actual way the handle attaches it's flat, it's straight and normally the metal on throws at the bottom it's tapered. So when you put a handle through one end it won't fall out the other. And I spent years struggling with this throw because it kept falling off the handle. And eventually when I started doing metal work I put it in a forge and I actually flared it myself so it would never fall off again. And unless you know that's going to happen, you know, a lot of this you just learn. So yeah, I'd certainly say the skill is probably the most intimidating thing of just seeing, like the frightening quality of stuff that people can produce.
0: Yeah, and in terms of the, I imagine it's much more technical. But in terms of going into the blacksmithing, you mentioned that you can make a very simple forge with the, was it an air blower and, and a hole in the ground? But if you were, if you, if you were keen to try it without uh, digging up the garden what sort of kit would you need to start there would you suggest joining a club first or an association by all means if there was somewhere locally that showed you how to
1: do it or had the had the the gear that you could use I would have definitely have chosen that if there was the opportunity to go somewhere and actually have a lesson definitely the the right way to do it in my mind mm-hmm. certainly with blacksmithing I mean I mean, you could just use a lump hammer, you could use um, a piece of railway track as an anvil, they're quite, they're quite common. You know, they're perfectly fine, they work really well. A large anvil with all its different um, sections isn't necessary for someone who's just starting out. But certainly with blacksmithing, you can that can be quite a money pit and quite a big um, thing to invest in. Certainly when you want to buy tools like the tongs, some of the hammers are quite expensive um forges you know a lot of people make their own which is certainly the cheaper option but you still need wording materials and other bits to put it together it's, Yeah, it's, it's i'd say blacksmithing is a lot, a lot more expensive when you really get into it certainly yeah for basics a hammer something hard something to generate heat I know some people make their own um forges out of refractory and, and just have a, like an airline coming into it um yeah you can actually do it fairly fairly simple but it's not i don't think it's as accessible as the greenwood working where you can i could sit in the woods with you you could point to a tree i can cut a branch off and i can carve a spoon with a knife and an axe with that that's all i'd really need Fine.
0: describe to me then in that case a typical session when you get into your workshop what would you do i've
1: now got it sort of set out i have all my stations set up to do different things um because the biggest killer in anything like this is time you know the more time you spend doing something, the less profitable and the less viable it becomes. I try and stagger everything I do around around that. So, because I make things in batches, a because it's consistently better, because I can get my eye in when I'm making a certain type of tool. If I'm making twenty of them as opposed to one, and and it's also you know more efficient. So what I'll do is I'll make things in batches and I stagger them. And I normally make stuff till the point where they're almost finished. And then I put them to the side and I start the next batch. Because getting them to the final stage is actually not as tricky. Um, sometimes when I'm doing stuff, I have to wait. So, for instance, I could get some metal stock. I could mark it out. I'd forge it out. Then I have to put it in some uh, vermiculite to anneal. That can take an hour or so. So in that hour's time, I have to be doing something else. So I go to the other bits that I've left from the previous day, and I do something there, and then I come back to the previous one. So I kind of jump in between. It's very rare I'll stay on one thing all day. It's normally about five or six different things, um, and depending on the weather, and if I've got some nice wood um, in mind, um, I'll sometimes go outside and turn a bowl or do a bit of spoon carving. And I often do that when I do when I quench stuff, and it goes in the tempering oven. I normally have between one or two hours to kill. Depending on the type of steel that's being tempered, it's either one hour, or two hours that has to sit in there and be you know, tempered for. And normally at that point, I'm really hot. I've been forging and <laughs> I quite like a break. So it's quite a nice sort of two hour rest. Um, so that's normally when I stop and have a drink. And sometimes I'll go outside and turn a bowl for an hour.
0: Does the variety keep it interesting mm-hmm. for you?
1: Absolutely. Because um If I made the same thing over and over and over, I would go crazy. And certainly when you're doing a bit of bowl turning or spoon carving, there's tons of variety in because you never quite know sometimes what it's going to turn out like.
0: Four. So how do you find time for all these things? I've got
1: a a small workshop, um, fairly local actually. It's only about 10 minutes away. And it's nice. I can pop there any time of the day or night and and work on bits and pieces. My wife's a hairdresser, so she works Saturdays. So I generally always go down on a Saturday because might as well so I only do a Saturday and sometimes sometimes a Monday occasionally a Sunday depending and then I do some evenings as well in between because I work Tuesday to Friday at my other job so I sort of try and fit it in around there the way that it works out it's quite nice actually because I find again if you're there too much or if you're if I'm doing too much of one thing you know it's it sort becoming fun so I think having that little break in between it's definitely the right right way
0: to manage it. Three. What are the barriers to entry? I think you've mentioned a few of these already. But, uh... <clears throat> yeah, I mean obviously getting the right tools, and getting the
1: right experience and training. Um I think meeting the right people, I think having a really good first impression, meeting you know, meeting someone that's passionate and welcoming and and thankfully like most most people that you see at the Bodgers ball are just like that. You know, it's got a really nice atmosphere. You walk around, and, you know, somewhat a few years back, a guy called Harry Rogers was filming, and he was filming just as he does, you know, what's happening at the ball. And he looked at my lathe and he was like, Oh, you've got a different type of lathe there. And we just chatted and he filmed about it. And so it's got quite a nice opening nature. Um, And I know certainly in recent years, this isn't a problem, but if you had said 10, 15 years ago, um, I think the greatest barrier is that people don't know about it because of the lack of social media and its presence out there it's just one of those things that if you've come across it or you know someone then you know it and obviously it's different now you know we've you know we've got you know crazy amounts of social media and, and presence and, and websites and filming and it's easy to take photographs of what you make and do and so yeah there's definitely um there's definitely been a really it's a nice renaissance period at the moment where people are becoming more aware um and I think even if you know, even if you're just say someone who has a you know, a pretty average job, doesn't do much with their hands, I think just knowing that you can sit down on an evening and just have a go at whittling a spoon and like the pleasure that can bring and just the um that mental break, you know, I think it's so worth it. It really is.
0: Two. What clubs and associations are there? Hmm. You
1: mentioned the APT before? Yeah, so it's the Association of Pole Lave Turners and Greenwood Workers, and um, that's the main one. Um, so they they kind of like an umbrella. So they 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 sort of encompass, you know, essentially pole lave turning, which I didn't I haven't really talked about on here, but that's actually what I learnt first from Lee. There's another thing, the APF, There's a Forestry Expo, and it's actually right where I live, near near Redditch. And they have the World Pole Laving Championships. And I was going to go to it last year and enter it. But then, obviously, we couldn't. Um, so, yeah, maybe this year. They do host it in September. But anyway, yeah, the APT. So, they, it's mainly pole laving turning. But they also, they sort of encompass a lot of greenwood crafts. So, that could be, you know, you know, bowl turning, spoon carving, um, you know, anything sort of heritage. And it's kind of, yeah, it's really sort of developed from there. So, yeah, they're a pretty good resource. Um, they provide insurance for us. And there are lots of local groups all throughout the UK, which is quite nice. I think it's twenty pounds a year to join, and you get I think four books a year, a more articles. The Bodgers' Ball I think it's like twenty-five pounds for the weekend. It's nothing. See, it's just getting better and better, isn't it? It's really good. It really is. Yeah, yeah. It's selling it to me. I have to say, yeah. <laughs> for it's the price and, and what you get, but yeah, um, but yeah. So the APT and at the Bodgers' Ball, they have the they have the AGM as well. So on the um, on the Saturday night at six o'clock, we all sit and have, have our AGM. Um, the one thing I didn't explain is why it's called bodgers. Um, which, no, you didn't, no. Um, which It'll might be, might be confusing yeah. some people. So back to polo turning, a traditional bodger is someone that used to make chair legs. So back before uh, machining, there were bodgers that lived in the woods and they would manage um, woodlands specifically for chair leg production. And so there'd normally be a master and a couple of apprentices and their job would be to turn chair legs all day.
0: One. Right, now for the final part, it's the challenge to sell your your hobby. So, Richard, your time starts now. 30 seconds.
1: So we all know digital music exists and we use it. But despite that, we still love and use vinyl. You know, I could use an electric lathe, to turn most things but I still choose to use a hook tool and a treadle and certainly for me and others like me it's all about the process not the end product
0: that's that's what it is for me well done you've done that with uh, about four seconds to spare uh I don't think you can put it more succinctly than that to be quite honest with you I mean Uh, that's that's really what it's about for me it's just
1: it's about the process it's about why why we do it you know the links to the past, the heritage, and it's so tactile. You know, you're shaping wood with your hands in real time at your own pace. It's that that you know that connection, and it's just there's nothing else like it. And that's why I liken it to vinyl. It's you know people love vinyl for that texture, for that 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 feeling, that that sort of connection to the past, and it has that that different flavour to it. And it's it's that same thing, particularly with um, with heritage crafts.
0: Richard, thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. No, thank you. Conclusion. Is this hobby for me? Definitely. It combines woodworking with something I've long wanted to explore blacksmithing. I think I'll look for a weekend course in blacksmithing to get my safety and handling in place before I charge on with my own stuff. This ties in well with my woodworking hobby and is a nice extension. I've not been in the workshop for a few weeks, and one project I do have for this spring is to build a new workbench, which will support the move to buying some new tools. You can never have too many tools. The Bodger's Ball is cancelled for this year, sadly, but I fully intend to find time to attend next year, virus permitting. I'm really excited about this, and we'll see if I can rope in a friend too. Whether this is for you is another matter. You have to have the interest in making things in the first place. Woodworking of any kind doesn't need much space if you're clever. I have a book somewhere on this very subject, and there are people who have built a small bench in the space under their stairs. It's a rewarding hobby for the right person, but buying tools can be a little bit expensive. A simple, cheap, disposable saw, a half-inch chisel, a four double-faced mallet and a second hand number four plane, plus a sharpening stone could be bought for under £100, and combined with something to grasp your work can set you on your way very ably. That's it for today's episode. All being well, the next episode will be out in a couple of weeks' time. Don't forget, I'd like to talk to you about your hobbies. Please drop me a line at the email in the show notes. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate and review on the app of your choice. It all helps to get this podcast in front of new eyes and ears. Until next time, I've been Piers, and this has been The Hobbyist. The podcast about hobbies and interests.